Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. I wouldn't say we fell in love right away. I think we were, as they call it in the biz, trauma bonding. And then after eight years of being insufferably sober, I started drinking again. Addicts tend to be rather sensitive people. Aren't you Mark Maron? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, what happened to you? Hey, you guys, it's Anna David here. You are listening to Recover Girl, podcast about addiction recovery and sharing your dark to find your light. On that note, I'm thinking of changing the podcast name. People hate change. If you're listening, will you please just not go away if I change the name to Light Hustler? It's what everything else I'm doing is called. Anyway, I don't mean to start this off on a confusing note. Um, If you're new to the podcast, you won't mind the name change, I don't think. If you're old to the podcast, thank you so much for listening. It means so much to me. It really, really, really does. And I don't say that enough. So I'm going to say that now, and then I'm going to get right into today's guest. It's a good news, bad news situation. The good news is he's amazing and you will fall in love with him. The bad news is that this was done over Facebook Live, and that means Sometimes that can be wonky, and the wonkiest of wonky things happened, which is he got completely cut off at the end when he was talking, I'm so sorry, about how to get through darkness, particularly feeling suicidal. He was amazing. We got into that before. So please, I know this is unprofessional and weird. It cuts off. Bear with it. I love you so much. And uh, this is Sean Paul Mahoney, by the way. He's a, well, I explain it all in here, but he's a blogger and a playwright and a podcaster and all of the rest. And here he is, Sean Paul Mahoney. You can find him online at Seanologues. Yeah, like monologues by Sean. S-E-A-N-O-L-O-G-U-E-S. And now I really mean it. This is Sean Paul Mahoney. Now, if you're in recovery from drugs or alcohol, you've already conquered what was holding you back. But addiction is one of those things that can play whack-a-mole, and just when we dealt with one thing, another comes popping out. Now there's a tool that can help you track your relationship with technology, pornography, gambling, and shopping. It's an app co-founded by my friend and recent podcast guest, Gabe Zickerman. It's called Onward, and here's how it works. If you're concerned about your potential overuse of technology, pornography, gambling, or shopping, you can immediately start to receive automated tracking and reporting of your use. A customized behavior change program, locks on certain sites and apps, personalized AI coaching, and so much more. Sign up for a free or pro account by going to onward.org or just downloading directly from the App Store. If you're not sure whether or not you need the help, take the quiz at onward.org. Just be forewarned, it may give you some news you don't love but might need. Over 10,000 monthly users have already jumped on Onward, and the LA Times in 2020 are already talking about it. Soon enough, you may be too. That's onward.org. 
www.thrivingmom.org. Hi, you guys. Anna David here. I'm so happy. You heard there's two reactions already. I'm here with, no pressure, the funniest man alive, Sean Paul Mahoney. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure at all. No, none. But if you like the people in your life and you're watching and you want them to hear the funniest person alive, what are you doing? Go share this with them. Tell them to come here. I do this every week. I talk to somebody on Facebook Live, somebody fabulous. Usually it's Tuesdays at four o'clock Pacific Standard Time. But yesterday my guest totally effed me. Oh, got it. <laughs> so, so now we're doing it better. Wednesday, got someone bigger and better. Now I've got that venting out. If you're hearing this on the podcast, doesn't sound as good as the pristine sounds of the podcast you normally, but it's so worth it because as I've told you now the third time, the funniest man alive. So who, hey, Travis. Um, hey, what up, Travis? Look at this. We get to put comments up on the screen. It's so fun. Oh my God, amazing. Podcast and you're like, what does she mean? That's the craziest thing. Why is Sean so excited about that? You better go like my Facebook page, in which case you will know because you will be able to watch these. That's facebook.com slash Anna B. David. Look, Jordan was thrown off yesterday by the fact that we didn't do it. Well, God, now you know. Don't want to throw anybody off. Um, okay, so let's get into it. So Sean was one of my favorite writers when I was at After Party Magazine. Um, I remember I was looking for new writers and somebody said, it was one of my current writers, uh, it was either Dana or Kristen said, oh my God, do you know, you obviously know Sean Paul Mahoney. And I started reading your stuff and you were just so, so, so good. So let me, I'm going to let him talk, I swear to God. Um, he is, he just celebrated nine years of sobriety. Yes, ma'am. A playwright. He is a blogger. I am going to put his uh, blog name right up there on the screen again. Are you seeing that on the screen, by the way? I am not. I hope the kids out there are, but I'm not. Kids, are you? Because my screen goes wonky and suddenly I can't see things. Let me try again. But anyway, it's Shauna Logs. In case you can't see that, he blogs pretty much every week. He's been slacking right. a little bit. <laughs> also has a podcast called Slashed Cinema. He's about right. to get really back into that, too. Anyway, this is Sean Paul Mahoney. Hi, guys. Hi, it's Sean. exciting to be here. Um, I love working with you. And what up, Paul? Paul. Oh. Nice. Our favorite. Okay, is Paul, Paul, is it, oh God, you guys, I'm so sorry. It's being, the screen's being wonky, but we are saying hi to Stuart, Paul, Missy. We're so glad you're here. I'm sorry I can't put your comments on the screen. Sean. Okay, you loved, I think you were saying something about you loved me. Yes, always about that I love you. <laughs> um, and I love working with you. And so, of course, when you emailed me, I was like, yes, I'll do Wednesday. I'll do any day with you. I will say just because this is not to be self-aggrandizing, um, but because he's the hilarious, he wrote back, Anna, I would write the on the back of cereal boxes for you. It's true. It's That's true. So okay. So, Sean, you had a terrible New Year's Eve nine years ago. I'm I did. Tell us about it. Um, okay. Well, so I got evicted from my house in Silver Lake. Hi, Wes. Um, and in 2008, like December 29th, and then I went to a New Year's party uh, where I snorted Adderall, which is like poor white people's cocaine. And I so no judgment here. Go right, on. right. 
Um, and I watched uh, A Curious Case of Benjamin Buttons, which is a horrible movie. I, I'm so sorry. I think about that movie all the time because I constantly wish we could have started out old and grown young. I think about it almost every day of my life, and it was a horrible movie. Go it on. was a horrible movie, and also, why did Kate Blanchett sound like Foghorn Leghorn in that movie? <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, it was a bad movie, and that should have set the tone for everything. And then New Year's Day would have been my sobriety date, but I needed to drink mimosas, and so I did that. And then I called my family on January 2nd and said, I need help. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how it started. Um, and uh, I thought like it was maybe going to be like a lame uh, New Year's resolution kind of a jam. Like do it for a couple of months, have everybody like rally around me and everybody want to help me. Uh, but it came like it was pretty clear pretty fast that uh, I actually had a real problem. So. And so what, what, what made that day different? I mean, here you were drinking, yes, you got evicted and that's horrible, obviously. Right, right. You're drinking mimosas on New Year's Day. What happened? What do you think, what internal shift was it? Well, so it would be one thing of like, oh, it was your first time being evicted, but it was like my third time being evicted. I was in a relationship, which I fondly like to call the world's longest running production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Um, nothing but drinking and fighting. And so that was 12 years too long. And it, and it finally was just like enough already. Really, Sean? Like another eviction, another time throwing your shoe at your ex. Like, really? So it was bad. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And I finally, like, actually had to ask for help. And um, there was, like, a pit in my stomach. And I having my dad be sober for it was like 30 years at that time and my sister being sober about four years i knew that they would tell me what to do Mm. and be able to help me but they didn't give me the answer that i wanted oh what so what did you want to hear so what i wanted to hear is like okay we'll pay for you to go to a rehab maybe something in malibu maybe like a fancy sober living like I was like researching like where Britney Spears had been, that kind of thing. Yeah. And um, and my my family had gotten all sober through AA, and they were like, "No, actually, bitch, you're gonna go to church church basements and do it like we did." And I was like, "Damn!" So um, so rude of them. I know, right? And uh, yeah, so that was kind of the moment. I mean, I started drinking at fourteen. And I had an alcohol-related arrest at 15. I stole peppermint schnapps. And I think if you steal peppermint schnapps, you should be arrested. <laughs> uh, I don't think normal people should get away with that kind of behavior. And so it was out of control at the beginning. I remember standing with a friend of mine at like 15 and he's vomiting his guts out. And we were listening to the Smiths and he's vomiting blue whatever, is blue alcohol, into the snow. And I remember thinking at 15, like, this is the most punk rock moment ever. And I want to do this for a really long time. And I did. And I drank all the way and had unmanageability all the way until age 36. It's a good run. That's quite yeah, a run. It's a good run. I can't do math, but 14 to 36 sounds like a lot of time. 20- it's a, yeah, like 22 years. Yeah. Um, one thing I was going to say about rehabs is I, too, you know, obviously was looking for glamour and some sort of a like summer camp, like a glamour. Right. Camp. 
And so I was like, well, where did Charlie Sheen go to rehab? Because <laughs> that, that worked out well. This was before winning. This was back when he was like a sober person. And that was like a great thing to want. Um, so I saw that he went to Promises. And in my Coke delirium, I called up all these rehabs. I got to Promises. I didn't know there were two Promises. So the, both are very, very fancy now. Back then, this was the dark ages. There was a fancy one and there was an unfancy one. I went to, I did outpatient at the unfancy one. Uh -oh. And I remember like walking around being like, it's so cool the way they like have this like totally run down place and like the ba the basketball net's broken and they like hide the celebrities. So nobody knows how fancy it is. And someone's like, bitch, there are two promises. You're <laughs> at the bath. You're at the unfancy one. I was like, what? But I was already, <laughs> I didn't care. Um, okay. So, so 36 you were living in Los Angeles. I was. Now you're a happily married cat owner in Portland. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So what happened between those two things? So what happened was, well, I moved to LA when I was 23 because I had what I like to call my summer of mess. It's very <laughs> romantic. It's like a summer in the Hamptons, but scarier. Um, and uh after having that summer of meth, I think everybody in my family knew like at 23 that I wasn't okay. And so our idea was like, why not move to LA in 1995 as a drug addict? Like what's the worst that could happen? Um, and so I thought I'd get out there and get my stuff together. But flash forward to that time, to age 36, um, I had kind of been through the ringer. You know, I worked at nightclubs forever and I DJed and it started out as very glamorous. And like going to places in West Hollywood where George Michael and Courtney Love and other pillars of sobriety were. And um, and then uh, it went from like being on the guest list to like dive bars. Oh, I used to go to a great dive bar in uh, Los Feliz called The Drawing Room. Do you know that dive bar? No, mine, it, my Los Feliz was Akbar, which was a gay bar. Oh, right. I liked that one. And, um, but, but no, I mean, my bar was like my living room and my two cats and my, right. Cat. Right. So that's what happened. I would go to that dive bar and then it became my living room too. Like I went to my, so that's kind of the progression for me. And so then I got sober in Santa Monica, um, an amazing place to get sober. And then I moved back to Denver, a weird chain of events sent me back to Denver where I met my husband and then his job moved us out here. So that's kind of like been the whole thing. Now you teased me earlier and told me, a, like, I think you said like a super fucked up thing happened today. You didn't swear Aww. like a weird thing happened. I want to talk about it. Now you get to talk about it. Okay, good. All right. So, and if this is a bit of a ramble interject at any moment, but so like my whole, like my whole basis of drinking and using was, not dealing with reality. I'm not a big fan. I've never liked it. I grew up in an alcoholic home. Things were always really real all the time. And I think drugs and alcohol actually saved my life because I was able to fully get outside of myself. And before drugs and alcohol, it was like movies and TV and music. But then like drugs and alcohol really did the trick for a really, really long time for me. And so the irony for a person like me now that I'm sober is that all my life is, is fucking real all of the time. Um, it got real, real fast for me at seven months sober. I found out that I am HIV positive and, um, 
And uh, so that was real. And I got through that sober without drinking. And and now I, uh, in addition to being a freelance writer, I had an epiphany. Well, okay, so like an emotional rock bottom and an epiphany that happens, I guess, apparently around my age of sobriety. Everybody keeps telling me like, oh, between seven and 10, that's your spiritual desert. I'm like, well, now you fucking tell me. I don't know if I signed up for the spiritual desert. Wait, that's um, crazy. My, I moved to New York when I was seven years sober in retrospect, I think because I was miserable or something. And I remember my sponsor saying to me between seven and 10, I cried every day. And I was like, cool, well, I'm going out. No, no, no. Hold on. I go, well, I'm going out because I don't want that. And she was the most negative person I've ever known. <laughs> not true. And besides, you're almost at 10. So and, right. and it's just not true. But go on. It's not true, but it was kind of true-ish over the summer. And I was like, what am I doing? And so I decided that I wanted to, like, do more. Like, I want to be a writer. I know being funny is, like, the thing that I bring to the table. But, like, I want something else. And actually, because of an article I wrote for you, I fell into the world of peer support specialists. Amazing. Do, what story was it? Um, it was a, one that I wrote for After Party. So, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll throw a link up. Okay, okay, yeah. Put it, but so wait, what do you, what was the trajectory? You wrote this story and then what happened? And then I, like, it was always in my brain. And I am like the kind of writer that likes to have the side job too. And because of my special needs as insurance and stuff goes. So um, I started thinking about it and then it popped in my head and I was like, oh, wait. And so I started researching it here. Recovery community here in Portland is amazing and huge. And um, so I got into work and I work for uh, behavioral health units um, here through the sheriff's department. And it's nothing but real all the time like very real. It's a disease in its rawest form. I think we can read 5,001 HuffPo articles about the opioid crisis or about meth or watch freaking Diane Sawyer or whatever, but like, like up close in your face and as an addict, it's like, oh my God. So today I was with a guy without disclosing his story uh, who was overdosing and I was sitting with him while he was overdosing and waiting for the paramedics to come. And yeah, I felt super grateful, but yeah, I also felt like, holy shit. Like that's as real as it gets. And it's not like when I think about like waiting for somebody as the paramedics come, I want to be like heroic, like Juliana Margulies and like early seasons of ER. But right. like the reality was like, Oh, this sucks. This is not heroic. This is bullshit. And, and so he, it was an opiate overdose? Yeah, well, he was on, and uh, kids, don't try this at home, the uh, mixing Suboxone with benzos, which is basically like swallowing a gun, and um, but effective for being high. And also it can kind of, as an addict, give you uh, like, oh, wait, but I'm not shooting up. <laughs> and we deal with a lot of harm reduction, and it's like, okay, sure, you don't have a needle hanging out of your arm. But this combination is bad news and all doctor prescribed too. Right, right. So so he wasn't, it wasn't like a suicide attempt. He was trying to have fun. No, right. Or just maintain, you know, Right. or probably trying not to deal with reality like people like me. 
And um, would you, is it, is there a situation where you would be like administering naloxone or something like that? No. And, and plus like with that, um, uh, there is Narcan actually in the properties of Narcan are actually in Suboxone. So mixed with the benzos, it doesn't do shit. Right. So basically I was just hanging out till the paramedics came. That is so scary. So you were like at any point he could die. Is yeah. That yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, it was horrible. And then like in your 12 step brain, you're like, Ooh, but you're supposed to be like really grateful. And, and I do. Right. And yet it's very real. And I think like, I know it's real and intellectually, I know that it's real and I'm like that can read all the stuff and be whatever. But then sitting next to it, it's like, oh, no, this is like the ghost of alcoholic addict Christmas future. Like, this is no joke. I so get that. I, you know, because we're both sober a while. And the further you get away from it, I also was not around for the kind of level of opiates that that are around now. I got sober before freaking um, Oxy. I mean, not before. Wow. I know I'm a thousand, but, <laughs> and so I forget. And I'm like out here being like recovery, rah, rah. Isn't it so great the way we can share our dark to find our light. And I was at an, at a, um, an event with, with Ryan and Hampton and this, and it was like announced like, Oh, if you want to talk to somebody about sharing your dark, to find your light and you want to tell your story, go talk to Anna David. And this woman came up to me and she was like, um, hi, my son died <gasps> ago. This is his picture. Um, I'm, destroyed what can i do and i was just like oh my god i forget i actually it brought it back to me in a way that i just either never knew about or just forget about how real how deadly even though we're flooded with these stories all the time right it's really insane so what do you tell people who come to you and say i'm struggling i want to get sober what do you tell the people you're working with on a day-to-day basis so a lot of what we do is try to keep people out of jail since I work with the behavioral health unit. And if, and a lot of it's harm reduction. And as a like huge 12 step person and like total abstinence based thing, it's been like a bitch to wrap my brain around like, okay, so maybe not shooting up between your toes is better than smoking crack or maybe Smoking weed every day helps you not do either one of those things. And like to really meet people where they are. And a lot of times people will tell us straight up. I had somebody tell me this the other day that he didn't want to be sober. And I was like, there you go. And so how do we help them not end up back in jail or not be in mental health court? And the answer is difficult. And it's super layered because you're always walking the line between enabling people and helping people. And then as a person who's an addict and in recovery, I can kind of be the bridge between case management and between doctors and psych nurses. And so I know right away, like I'm able to identify when somebody's high, when like these normies can't. And uh, it's very crazy. And, um, And a lot of it is lowering my expectations, you know, that I can't be like Captain save a hoe and make sure like I can like spread the magic of recovery and everybody's going to be better. It's like, no, maybe you just like that sit with somebody who's dying 
and hope that they get help. Right. And then you also have to realize like a lot of people's bottom, it's not over, you know? Yeah. And that is, that's humbling too, for sure. So what you said that it was sort of a, an emotional bottom that got you to do this work has doing this work given you what you wanted or it's very challenging work. Um, how are, are you still in the emotional bottom? Uh, thank you for asking about my bottom. Um, okay. uh, okay. I, uh, <laughs> I, um, you know, I'm not. And I think like, I know you've felt this before too, that like the most uncomfortable parts in sobriety are like the best later, later. Eh. I know. I hate that. Like pain is the touchstone of growth. I'm like, oh, please kill I mean, me. True, but it's awful. No, it's awful. Yeah. Yeah. But um, that being said, like I'm not in it now and I'm on the other side of it. And a lot of that has to do with like kind of being really super nice to myself mm -hmm. and like going back to the, what worked at the beginning, going to a shit ton of meetings, getting a new sponsor sitting in a room full of strangers and crying on a regular basis saying like, like literally what came out of my mouth over the summer was, okay, so I don't want to drink or do drugs, but I don't know if like, I don't want to step in front of a train or jump off a bridge. Right. Like it's weird. And you hear people with more time talk about suicide or feeling suicidal than you do new people. Like, yeah. and I don't know if I've ever like had a plan, right. but I think that like on the dish of my mental health, suicide is like the parsley on the side, you know, like it's always kind of there. It's not the main entree, but it's never an, not an option. So to open my mouth and say that mm. was kind of like the beginning all over again. And I got a sponsor who was like, I get it. And that's kind of, I don't know. And then the work itself has been great, but like that I have to keep my, self-care and my own program totally separate from my work life right. and because I can't mistake that for my program I mean how many people do you know in LA who decided to work at a rehab and then stopped going to meetings or stopped being sober yeah and I remember I had a writer when I was at the fix who wrote in a story I used to go to meetings now my recovery work is writing about recovery and I'm like oh no 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 uh -huh. that you need to do more all of that being said, I do want to make this clear. Right. NA is not for everybody. However you want to go about your recovery. Absolutely. Whatever's working is, you know, what your recovery is about. And I'm curious to, for you, I didn't know until I was at the fix that there was any other way to do it. And then, you know, and I was just like, jail's institution's death. You got to do it this right. way. And, and for me, that's true. And now, you know, doing this work at all publicly, it's like you hear from people all the time. And it's been this amazing education to realize you know, there are people who can do every, I've heard everything in the world. Is it, Has that been a shift for you doing the work that you're doing? Absolutely. And I'm totally open to that. And I, in fact, think like the, on both sides, I think the argument is really boring and really like a way that we separate ourselves from each other when we're like, AA is the only way or AA sucks. When we like take those hard lines where first of all, we're alienating a whole bunch of people who could use help. And if we're saying the way that you're re recovering sucks, that's bullshit. You know, like, I don't know what works for anybody else. And I think it's part of being in my 40s, too, that, like, 
I'm so fuck it with like everything. I'm just like, I don't care. I really don't care what works for you. And I'm glad you're happy. Right. And, and I think that's a lot of it. And with this work, some of it is harm reduction. Some of people stay sober because of church. Some people do smart recovery, whatever. I think anything that we can do to not separate ourselves from each other and support each other is, um, is good. You know, um, I, I, I often think that about the bottom, high bottom, low bottom thing. Like, what would you consider yourself? Um, oh, such a great, I, it's hard to answer because I was not needle in my arm in a gutter naked right. with him standing over me, but I wanted to die. So does it right. get more than that? I think that's a low bottom. I mean, but I think they're all low bottoms. I had yeah. a great friend, Lisa D, who got sober at the Beverly Hills women's meeting. Mm-hmm. And she was saying that she heard there that whether it's 90210 or Skid Row, you can always live um, on a park bench in your mind. And um, I think that is true. You know, I think that's straight up true. And um, for me, like, I think I'm a low bottom, but then I also don't like the term. Like, and I don't like, because like, you hear a lot of people who are like, it's like really punk rock to have these low bottoms where you're like living under a bridge and smoking crack with a rat, you know, where it's like, or really high bottoms where they're like, I wasn't that bad. And then they talk longer and you're like, Oh my God, you're insane. And um, so I think the bigger thing is, is like what happened on the inside. And if your inside feels like a garbage fire, then you deserve to be sober, you know? And that's kind of where I've gotten to. Yeah, or you deserve to be in some form of recovery, whatever that is. Absolutely. Yeah, it's um. I, first of all, yeah, the one I like. It takes people from Yale and people from jail, and there's also from Park Bench, from Park Avenue to Park Benches. Park Bench, right? So many good little good uh, ones, nuggets, nuggets. <laughs> um, but but oh, and and I do think it's interesting these like highs and lows and the exaggerations. I remember my friend Jeff saying previous podcast guest Jeff Rhoda saying to me that um, he's like, the the thing you hear all the time is I was constantly waking up in beds of people I didn't know. And he's like, truthfully, I never like, 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 that never really happened. And I was like, wait, I feel like I've even said that, like, you catch these phrases, and you like, start repeating them. And you're like, not really, not really. Right. Over you, right. you constantly waking up in beds of people you didn't know. Um. Wait, was I? Oh, yeah, yeah I, I actually was. Yeah. You know, that's legit. Um, I would remember, like, how I got there. Yes. Okay. See, that's different. That's different. Like, I feel any, but like, it is interesting, you know, you, you know, this sort of, it's either the best or the worst. We always want to be that. The longer I'm sober, the more I realize how totally ordinary and boring my story is. I wish it was different. It's so boring. You right. Know? Right. You at least well, have evictions. Oh, I know. Real punk rock. Well, it's weird. Like, uh, landlords don't love the idea of you spending your rent on uh, cocaine and tequila. Uh, so, on, yeah, I don't know. Yes, lame. Weird. L.A. landlords. But I did <laughs> actually seriously get back to what, what we were talking about a minute ago, which right. is what do you tell somebody who is going through that sort of um, the period that you were describing? So I heard this recently and I, it resonated with me that like, tell me your opinion. And I think it's bullshit, but if you tell me your experience, 
I'll believe you. And I usually just tell people my experience that like, look, it had to be really bad for me to ask for help. And I know the scary thing for me and given like my family history that like my people can go on forever. I have people in their sixties in my family who are still drinking. And so I know for me that like the bottom is never ending. So um, I just tell people like, if you feel like you're done, you deserve to get help. And that's it. Like I had no self-esteem is the thing. And I think we fill that in for one another and help each other be like, look, you're freaking worth it. Mm. And so many people said that to me. Some woman, a lesbian at a meeting in Santa Monica said, we'll love you until you can love yourself. And I freaking burst into tears because A, I didn't know how to love myself. And B, I was like, oh my God, somebody will actually do that because that's a big job. <laughs> and um, it changed my whole life. And now I feel like I need to do that for other people. And But what about the darkness in recovery when people are just going through it and they're sober or they're in recovery? What What do you do? I mean, well, first of all, don't you think like that is like a thing that we don't really talk about that much? Like we love the story of somebody hitting bottom and getting better, but we don't want to hear that life is still hard. Like that book never sells. We never see that movie of people wanting to stab themselves even though they have five years sober, you know, because it's just too depressing. Right. But the reality is to tell people like like that, like have having coffee with people and being like, oh my God, me too. Wait, you wanted to die at seven years? I wanted to die at seven years. And being able to laugh about it, like I think that's it, is to like blow the door open as far as that goes.